Hello, I'm Brandon Martini, a commercial pilot and flight instructor. And I'm Carson Vasquez. I'm a private pilot. And you're listening to the Aviation Mentors Podcast, sponsored by Stratus Financial. So buckle up, because the Aviation Mentors are taking off. So today, we're taking on some more of the common Reddit questions that we found on Reddit uh, from from private pilots and student pilots alike. I know that we did this uh, maybe a month or so ago, and we had a lot of fun doing it. So we want to take on a few more of those questions, especially the ones that we didn't even get to finish that day. So today, uh, we have five brand new questions. The first question we're going to take on today is one that I'm going to talk about. Uh, for those of you who don't fly on a consistent basis, are you able to keep your skills sharp? I'm not talking about maintaining certification, but from a safety standpoint. Are you comfortable flying when you can't fly consistently? I think the answer is on this one. It depends on who the pilot is. If you're a brand new student pilot, your skills are not ingrained in you yet. Uh, You don't have the skill set to be able to not fly often and then get back in an airplane and think everything's going to be the same. So I know from my perspective that when I'm maintaining, I can not fly for a month and I can jump back in an airplane and I'll still be pretty good. I'll be like eight out of my 10, which is still plenty safe uh, and plenty good. Uh, I won't be perfect. I I probably can't land on one wheel and then set the other wheel down like I can do in a normal basis in like a Cessna 172. Uh, So they won't be as perfectly sharp. And that's me with 2000 hours. Now for someone like Carson, who has 200 hours, I'm guessing, and I would say from a safety standpoint, it's not safe for you to not fly for a whole month and then just, just try to get back. I would say go fly with an instructor. And I think as you decrease in the number of hours, you should fly with an instructor more often rather than just willy dilly. I, I didn't fly for one or three months and I can hop back in an airplane and I'll do it. No problem. Will you be able to do it? Probably, probably, or maybe. Um, but should you do it? I don't think that you should at all. I agree with that. Uh, I think part of it is just, it's not quite second nature to you yet. It's not super ingrained. Um, things can, it's, it's really a skill that can just go away pretty quickly if you don't use it. Um, it's really just a user lose it kind of thing. And the next question is, what was the most difficult thing during private pilot training? And what don't you think was covered enough and had to be learned and relearned the hard way? And how did you learn that thing eventually? I think the most difficult thing during private pilot training was really understanding the importance of ground school. Uh, For me, it was just a big block that I had. And it wasn't until I was pretty much ready for my check ride that Brandon booked my written for the next day and said, you're taking the written tomorrow. And then he booked my check ride the same day and he said, and you're taking your check ride next week and I'm going to cancel the check ride if you're not done with the written, I'm not going to sign you off for it. (laughs) So it really just took something to kind of get through my head Uh, that ground school is really important. And once I finished my ground school, I realized how much that I had learned in that. And it's really just an essential part. And something that wasn't covered enough and had to be learned and relearned the hard way is uh, helicopter rotor wash. And I'm pretty sure people have seen a a pretty viral video that's been going around of a Cessna 120 that had crashed from helicopter rotor wash. And what happened was he was flying into the airport in the 120, and there was a helicopter that essentially cut him off in the pattern and was a little bit farther down the airport, but he'd uh, left the equivalent of wake turbulence for a helicopter, which is rotor wash. And the pilot of the 120 had flown straight through it, and it pretty much sent him into a cartwheel in the airplane. And he was maybe 50 or 100 feet above the ground at the time. So it wasn't this massive crash. Uh, but he did cartwheel pretty much wing over wing and then slid for a couple hundred feet. It was, it was pretty uh, pretty ugly to watch. 
But something that just wasn't covered at all was that rotor wash. That That's a factor. And uh, some airports don't even mention that there's a helicopter, you know, flying in it, and you need to watch for that rotor wash. It, it's just something that happens. And I luckily didn't have to learn that the hard way. I was able to learn from someone else's mistake. But operating near other aircraft is one thing, but operating near helicopters is just something we're not really taught. Of. Yeah, I agree. That, um, that video was, was a really interesting one to watch because I think I would have done the same thing. And I don't say that as in a, in a proud way. I just, I don't think that it's ever been covered enough on what to look for when you're following a helicopter. Um, if you're an airplane person, obviously, if you're a helicopter person, you probably talk about rotor wash as much as you talk about uh, wake turbulence. But if you don't, you don't. I think that you should should kind of read up on that and know know about things like helicopter rotor wash and how long it takes to dissipate and stuff like that. So that's a really big thing. I mean, I'm sure we could probably compile an entire list of of things that you learned eventually or what shouldn't be covered enough. But but that one kind of sticks out on our mind. Uh, the next question I'm taking on, it's uh, I understand planes need, need uh, to achieve a minimum speed to take off, though, is there ever a speed that is too fast to take off at? So yes, um, this may seem like a basic question to somebody who's already a pilot or or commercial pilot or something like that, uh, but it's a really common one that students ask. And the answer is, yes, there is a, a speed too fast to take off at uh, because I mean, for you to continue going faster and the plane not take off, you're literally going to have to push the elevator down to keep yourself on the ground. So the odds are you're going to porpoise or you're going to bump your your nose wheel or you're going to uh, bump the prop into the ground or, or something like that. It's just not going to work, work out for you. The plane wants to fly. And when it hits the airspeed it needs to take off, it's going to fly unless you tell it not to or you tell it to do something else. So there really is a speed that's too fast to take off. And that's the speed where you're not controlling the airplane on the ground anymore. And it's not really on the ground. It's already flying. So you'd have to push it down, right? So kind of a, a little trick that you can actually do to show how the plane will just kind of fly on its own. Um, instead of having the trim neutral or whatever it says in your, uh, in your POH, what you can do is you can put a little bit of, of nose up trim in before you take off and you can press the power all the way in and then you can just kind of see that the plane will literally just take off once it hits that airspeed. Now, when you do this, you need to really watch your airspeed and, and make sure that you have your hands on the controls, all that stuff. But you can really kind of test out how the airplane will take off uh, on your behalf. Yeah, it was, it's actually a pretty cool trick um, to happen, uh, to, to watch happen. And the plane will really just take off on its own. So the next question is, why do passengers not get spatially disorientated? Does not having the ability to see forward affect how it affects people? Is it the size of the plane, the fact that we're not at the controls? Is it because passenger jets don't do maneuvers as drastic as a 172? And do pilots of passenger jets get spatial disorientation? So I'll answer that last one first. Uh, pilots of passenger jets can get spatial disorientation. It really can happen to anybody. We're just kind of trained to not get spatial disorientation by focusing on certain things at certain times, not looking outside when you're flying into a cloud, um, really just looking at the controls more than anything. That's why we practice and do hood time and do simulated instrument time to kind of get a good feel of what it's like just looking at the instruments. And passengers can and, and do get spatial disorientation as well. And it doesn't really have anything to do with the um, size of the plane or not being at the controls. And passenger jets don't really don't fly too much differently than a 172 as far as maneuvers are concerned. Uh, it's more so happens from looking at the instruments and then looking up and looking out the windows, looking side to side. 
uh, especially when you can't see outside and all you see is really just the the white of a cloud or the illumination of a your light off the cloud and it really will just kind of throw you off uh, because your body is telling you something completely different but looking at the instruments and looking outside that's typically when people get disorientated yeah and it's really kind of the same thing as like motion sickness i mean that's what spatial disorientation is it's motion sickness essentially in your head um, so i've seen people that are like reading a book that's looking down, reading a book, and then they look outside and the plane's turning. And then they look back down and start reading their book and they think the plane's still turning. They feel their body turning, and but they're not. It was just a, kind of a figment of their imagination. So uh, spatial disorientation can happen to everybody, uh, but it's really not going to affect you that badly when you're not flying the airplane. You have all these other stresses uh, on you. Uh, the last question we're going to take on today is, would you land in, uh, land ASAP if the gear failed on takeoff? The answer is yes, I would. I would, if the gear is failing while I'm taking off, I'm going to cut my power immediately, immediately and land straight ahead. Uh, I'm not going to go try to fly it around and see if I can make a better landing or anything like that. If it just failed on takeoff, that means I am not off the ground yet. Or even if I'm a foot, a foot above or something, uh, I'm going to land on, on the takeoff. Like I'm going to abort my takeoff and land straight ahead. Um, all airports have a buffer zone on each side of the runway. Um, typically they're field of some sort. I wouldn't say all airports, but most airports, at least anything that's a, uh, that's in a Bravo, Charlie or Delta airspace, they all have this, this buffer zone. So I'll land straight ahead and uh, just cut my power. Now, if my gear fails right after takeoff and I'm already in the air and I'm already flying, uh, and let's just say one gear doesn't go up, uh, one side of the gear doesn't go up or the nose gear doesn't go up or something like that. <laughs> I may take off uh, or continue the takeoff because you're already flying and then you just tried to put the gear up and it didn't work. So in that instance, I would take off, I would try to troubleshoot the issue and then I'd come back and land in whatever configuration is most safe for, for that type of landing. It really kind of depends on where it fails on takeoff, but I would say if I'm rolling and it fails, yeah, I'm just cutting the power and I'm aborting my takeoff, I'm never actually taking off. Um, now, if it fails like right after we take off and I try to put it up and it doesn't go up, um, it just stays down. I will, if I have enough runway remaining, I'll abort the takeoff. But if I don't, I'll continue the takeoff and leave the gear down, come back around and land. Uh, so it kind of depends on what method of failure uh, it, it fails at and, and in exactly when. So, I mean, there's the takeoff, uh, there's kind of the, the, the climb, and there's different different times that the gear can fail. And each one of those is going to be a different situation that you have to learn to, to deal with. And I would ask your flight instructor who's teaching how to fly a complex airplane, uh, ask them all of the different situations that the gear could possibly fail at. So I think that's it for the day. Uh, we just did five today. We want to have a nice short consumable episode for you guys. And I hope you learned something from, uh, from our perspective on these uh, five questions. So if you'd like to reach out to either one of us, you can reach us at Twitter or Instagram. For me, it's at Mr. Martini Guy. And for Carson, it's at Carson underscore AV17. And as a wrap up for the day, remember, we're here to guide you in your aviation journey. So fly safe and enjoy the ride.